penalties. So um, I, I really love educating. I love school, uh, love learning, uh, and you're probably going to see that come out uh, in this morning's uh, sermon. Uh, I, I tend to uh, become a pretty big nerd when we start looking at the Bible, and it's largely because I believe that the Bible has one consistent thread that we see throughout Scripture. And so when we look at one portion of the Bible, we cannot see it as an isolated um, situation. We cannot see it as specific to one area of the Bible. There is a, a thread. There is so much that is connected throughout the Bible. And so one of the things that I want us to do as we go through this book is, is see how it is part of an overall larger story, of a larger narrative. Um, so, if you guys have your Bible and you're turning with me to the book of Philemon, I'm going to start out by, by reading through a, 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 just the introduction of it, and then I want to help lay some context. I believe that every time we read the text of the Bible, it is important, it is imperative that we understand the context. What was going on during that t- time period? What was being done? Who these individuals were? And so, uh, as we start out through the book of Philemon, we, we see the author or author's of the Bible, or of this book of the Bible, the first uh, being Paul. So Paul acknowledges himself as he does in much of his writings. Paul, he says, is a prisoner for Jesus Christ and Timothy, our brother. By and large, Timothy is mentioned because he may be the individual who is actually penning or writing this letter to this individual. Now, if we move a little forward, we see that this letter is written by Paul, probably through Timothy, to an individual by the name of Philemon. Now, we know this about Philemon. It says that he is a fellow beloved worker. So he is somebody who acknowledges the faith, who has come to faith in Christ, who is part of this Christian community uh, that we're starting to see form and develop and migrate throughout much of the Mediterranean. But he also mentions Aphia and Archippus, which are two other individuals that are... um, uh, Fellow believers, uh, Aphia we know is a female, as our sister, but then Archippus we see a fellow soldier, uh, I like that term, uh, and uh, he says to the church in your house, the church that meets in your house, and I think this is an important thing for us to first acknowledge, that much of Christianity was still viewed as being um, uh, a, a negative uh, aspect, it was, it was questioning the uh, the Roman Empire, it was questioning Caesar, and so many of these people were not able to meet out in public, corporately like we are today. Much of them are likely having to meet in a, in a house church, and so he's acknowledging that. And then finally in verse 3, grace to you and peace from our God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as a good officer in the army and a teacher, I have to bring PowerPoint slides with me. I feel like it's just a requirement, so what my, my goal is this morning is I'm going to try to address certain things, but just for the sake of keeping myself on track, because I have a tendency to deviate, um, to, to chase rabbits, if you will, um, on the screen you guys are going to be able to see some of the bullet points and some of the things that I want, to, I want you to understand. Now, we see already in this text that there are some important things to note. First, it's written by the Apostle Paul, so we know that, but Paul references that he is a prisoner for Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean he's enslaved to Jesus. He is literally in prison, even though he is a servant and follower of Christ. He is uh, in in prison. This is likely written during Paul's two-year ministry or two-year imprisonment in Rome after being arrested in Jerusalem and making this long, um, uh, this long journey to Rome because he has appealed to Caesar. We see that at the end of, of Acts um, 
at, at chapter 20 and 21 and 22 is when we see that process, and then finally it ends in chapter 28 with Paul being in Rome. So we know that. It was likely written around 60, 61 A.D. As I said, Paul mentions being a prisoner, but he also mentions being a prisoner in other letters that were written to specific churches. So if we think about it, Ephesians, he references being a prisoner. In Philippians, he references being a prisoner. And in Colossians, he also references being a prisoner. So this is not the metaphor that he's talking about. This is the literal imprisonment that he's experiencing in the city of Rome for roughly a two-year time period. So it helps us understand this because these letters were all likely written at the same time or during this two-year time period in which he's serving in prison. Now, we know that Paul traveled to the city of Philippi in Acts chapter 16. So we know that he has some firsthand experience and firsthand knowledge in Philippi. It was likely that he started the church in Philippi. And we also know a little bit later in chapter 19 of Acts that Paul had also gone to the city of Ephesus. And it's in the city of Ephesus that Paul spends another two-year period of his life. I mean, he's, he's likely there for two years. And we see that in this um, time of, of him being at Ephesus, he's doing a lot of things. Um, he's spending a lot of time preaching to people, teaching them about the faith. But we see that message really starting to spread to the inland portion of the Mediterranean where Ephesus resides. Ephesus was a very large and prominent port city. So you guys can actually see this map. I know it might be a little bit hard to see. I've tried to circle where Paul is at in Rome. So we know that he is in Rome up in the upper left-hand corner. We know that he's riding to the cities in Ephesus, Philippi, and then this other city called Colossa. Colossa is about 100 kilometers due inland from Ephesus. As I said, Ephesus was a very prominent port city because it's right there on the water. There's a lot of movement that's taking place, not just on the water, but also from people that are passing through um, the inland of Asia to try and get to Ephesus so that they can barter, they can trade, they can acquire whatever types of necessities that they need. Paul knows this, and Paul camps there for two years because he realizes he has the ability to spread the gospel to the masses through this one specific city. And it is likely in this one specific city of Ephesus that he encounters many people who are coming from Colossa. We know one individual named Epaphras, she's mentioned in the book of Colossians, as being the lady who essentially starts the church in Colossa. There's no record that Paul ever went to Colossa, but we do know that he reached and encountered several people. Another one of those individuals that we know Paul interacted with from Colossa was a man by the name of Philemon. And so when we think about the context of what Paul is doing at this moment, he's writing a letter to a specific individual in a specific city, but this is also around the same time that he's writing to a larger group of people who are in the city of Colossa, who are in the church there, those individuals who are also in the city of Philippi, those that are in the city of Ephesus. Now, embedded within two of those letters that he sends first to the city of Ephesus and the other one to the city of Colossae, he mentions a specific individual, a man by the name of Tychicus. Tychicus is mentioned in Ephesians chapter 6, and he's mentioned in Colossians chapter, 20, or Colossians chapter 4. Here's what I want you to understand about this individual, Tychicus. Uh, Paul describes him in both of these letters in a very favorable light, and so I just want to take some time, and it should be on the screen for you guys to be able to see this. He says in verse 21 of chapter 6, 
so that you may also know how I, Paul, am doing while he's imprisoned in the city of Rome, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful servant. We know that he's a believer. We know that he's a strong, devout follower, and he's actually been supporting and, uh, and assisting and aiding Paul while he's been in prison. Our faithful, bro- our faithful minister in the Lord, he will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So this tells us a little bit more about who Tychicus is and why he's being mentioned in these letters. Paul is in Rome. He's imprisoned there. He doesn't have the freedom and the luxury to go wherever he wants. So he likely is having to use couriers. You are probably familiar with this term. Uh, We still use couriers today. If you ever have people come to uh, your front door and drop off a UPS package or you come to the the postal service will come and deliver mail to you. It's essentially what a courier is. But in this specific context, Tychicus is a courier of these letters that are going to the church. So Paul is writing these letters, and he's sending those letters with specific individuals, and inside those letters is an acknowledgement of who this person is, which adds credibility and credence to these individuals when they come to the church. So they're not just handing some random letter to people and saying, hey, you're supposed to read this. He's saying, this is a letter that I have been asked to bring to you by Paul the Apostle, and in that letter is my name, and it's going to vouch for me and who I am. So that's why Tychicus is being mentioned here, not to mention the fact that he is also a faithful, beloved brother who is being very um, diligent in his faith. We also see Tychicus mentioned in the book of Colossians in chapter 4, around the exact same time period uh, of this letter in Colossians chapter 4, verse 7. Tychicus, Paul says, will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister to the fellow servant in the Lord and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and may encourage your heart. So we know that Tychicus was in Rome with Paul, was an individual courier who was bringing this letter not just to the church in the city of Ephesus, but also 100 kilometers east to the city of Colossae, to the same church. Now I want to bring this up because there is another individual that is mentioned alongside Tychicus in the letter to the Colossians. So follow along with me. It'll be on the screen. Paul mentions this other individual. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother. And then he goes one step further and says, who is one of you? Pointing out that he himself is a Colossian. He is from that city. So Tychicus, not mentioned in Ephesus, because again, it's not really relevant because Onesimus is actually a citizen or he's from the city of Colossae who is accompanying Tychicus. So Paul mentions him. He's our faithful beloved son, uh, and beloved brother. He is one of you. They will tell you everything that has taken place during his time in Rome. Now, I've gone a pretty long way of explaining some individuals, and you might be asking, what in the world does this have to do with the book of Philemon? Why does this matter? Why is this important? Well, in verse 10 of the book of Philemon, which I should point out, we're going to go through the entire book, and I don't want to overwhelm you because it's only 25 verses, but we're going to go through this entire book of the Bible this morning, okay? Now, in verse 10, we see an important aspect in Philemon because Paul says to Philemon, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I have become 
in imprisonment. So now we see why Onesimus matters. Now we see why this individual is important because it is argued that the entire reason this letter is being written by Paul is for this one individual. Now we know this about Onesimus up to this point. He's a faithful and beloved brother. He's a follower of Christ. He has been supporting and helping Paul. And Paul references being his father. Now not his literal father, but his spiritual father. Paul goes to great lengths throughout much of the Bible to explain this idea of spiritual fatherhood or spiritual sonship, being a child of the faith, being a father to someone in the faith. It's a process of discipleship. Paul is essentially describing, I helped lead this man to a saving faith in Christ, and I'm helping disciple him in the faith. That's all he has to say by just referencing that he is his child. Now, here's what we need to do in order to understand more of the context in the story. We've got to read the rest of the book of Philemon. So if you will pick up with me in verse um, 8, we're going to read through the rest of the letter that Paul has written to Philemon. So I just want to help you understand the context a little bit more. So in verse 8, Paul says, Accordingly, based on, on what I've communicated, now we, we, we should also, I, I will point out a little bit later that as Paul has already merited uh, Philemon in his faith, he's very devout, he is somebody who, who has taken hold of the gospel and trying to live that out on a regular basis. But Paul says, Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you what to do. I'm not going to do that. He says, yet, verse 9, yet for love's sake, I prefer rather to appeal to you. Now, I have two daughters. I have a wife. We've been married um, for almost 17 years, and we have two beautiful daughters. And, uh, and I feel like at this point in my life, I, I am, I'm using this kind of language. I have the ability to require my children to do what I say. I can command them to go out and do that because of my position as, as their father, as a leader in the household. But I've gotten to the point now where I realize that if I can just command them what to do, they really don't understand why I want them to do certain things. And so now I've kind of moved into this process of appealing to my daughters to do certain things. Some cases without me even asking, like, clean your room, put your dishes away. You know, something small like that. What, what Paul is trying to do with Philemon is a little bit greater than that. And we're going to be able to see that. But I just want to point out that he says, I could command you to do this. Because, first off, Paul's an apostle. He's likely the individual who led Philemon to faith in Christ. And so there's a certain level of superiority that he has. But he says, you know what? I know how you are. I know your heart. I know how much you love Christ. So rather than try to command you to do this, to force you to do this, I'm just going to appeal to you. I'm going to ask you. I'm going to 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 not beg or plead, but to, to merely say, please consider doing this. Paul says, I, Paul, an old man, I know how he feels when he says that, and now a prisoner also for Jesus Christ. Again, acknowledging that this man is in chains. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I've become in prison. Verse 11, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful both to you, Philemon, and to me, Paul. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep Philemon, or I mean with Onesimus here with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf, almost as like a, um, an ambassador. 
in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But, in verse 14, Paul says, I preferred to do nothing without your consent. I could have kept him here, but instead, I want you, Philemon, to make this decision. In order that your goodness might not be out of compulsion, but out of your own accord. Not because I, as a parent, am forcing my children to do something, but because they want to do these things, because they desire to do these things. This is what Paul is appealing to. Verse 15, For this perhaps is why he parted from you for a while, that you might not have him back for, or that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bond servant. Some of your translations may say slave, but more than a bond servant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. That is what Onesimus has been. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? Verse seventeen. So, if you consider me your partner in the faith. Receive him, Onesimus, as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at, or uh, owes you anything at all, charge that to my account. And then Paul goes in verse 19 and says, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. It's almost as if he is taking the quill from Timothy and validating that he is the one writing this. Or that he is simply saying, yes, I mentioned Timothy before, but I want you to know this is not from Timothy this is from me. I'm writing this with my own hand. Sometimes I wish we could receive emails that say that, right? I'm typing this with my own fingers. Okay. In verse 19, I write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. It's almost just like one of those little loving digs. Verse 20, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord, so please refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience. Paul's essentially saying, I, I, I already know what you're going to do because I'm confident that you're going to make the right decision here, Philemon. I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Now, I'm going to stop there. Um, we see Epaphras, um, the, the individual who is, uh, is in the city of Colossa, who's helped start this church. She's going to receive some greetings, and then Paul mentions some other individuals who are supporting them. One being the apostle, or not the apostle, excuse me, one of them being Luke, the writer of the gospel narrative of Luke. He also mentions Mark, who is actually John Mark, the, the writer of the gospel narrative, Mark. And so these are some pretty important individuals that are with him during this time. But... If we read through this, we don't really understand much of the story. And I think there's good reason for that. I think that's one of those moments where God says, I'm going to leave just enough ambiguity out there that you can't try to say that this, this request only applies to this one specific issue. This is more of a general biblical truth that we need to receive as Christians. This idea of how do we, what Paul is asking Philemon do, how do we forgive? How is it that we can forgive and forget when other people have wronged us. Now, we don't know the specifics, but I at least want to paint a picture of some of the facts that we're able to acquire through the story. So I think they'll be on the screen here in a second. First, we know that Onesimus was a bondservant or a slave of Philemon. Now, this can mean indentured servant. He's an employee that works for him, or it could literally mean that he is a slave. He is owned by Philemon, and Philemon is his master, his dictator, tells him exactly what he needs to do. 
According to verse 18, in some way, shape, or form, Onesimus dishonored Philemon. We don't know the details or the specifics. He just says, if he has wronged you. And he even says, if. He doesn't take Onesimus' word for it. He says, if he has wronged you in some way, shape, or form, charge that to my account. But we know that Onesimus, in some capacity, has dishonored Philemon. We know that Onesimus fled Colossa, which is where he was at, and somehow ended up in Rome. And that map that I showed you shows a pretty strong or pretty far distance that he's got to go, right? There's a pretty strong disparity there. While Onesimus is in Rome, he comes into contact with Paul. Either he knew who Paul was beforehand, or he just somehow stumbles across Paul while he's in Rome. Paul leads Onesimus to a saving faith in Christ, to where he now becomes a Christian, a follower of the way. And then Paul decides to send Onesimus back to Colossa to first help deliver the letters that are going to the churches, Ephesus and Colossa, more specifically to Philemon. And it's for that reason that he sends him there, to help write some wrong that he had committed. Now, I want to go back to this courier concept, and I just want you to want to paint in your minds, hopefully, how this likely transpired. You've got Tychicus and Onesimus who are traveling from Rome. They stop in Ephesus. They spend time with the church there. They're, they're encouraged by the fellow brothers and sisters there. And then they travel inland to the city of Colossae, and Onesimus is there. He knows people know who he is. Word has probably gotten out what he did to Philemon. So he might not even be liked at this very moment. And add to that that he now has to go to his former master who no one knows how Philemon is going to respond. And he hands Philemon the letter from Paul that is hopefully going to clear this whole process up. I mean, imagine being Philemon. You see a guy coming to you who has wronged you, who has done something bad, and he's coming towards you, and he essentially says, before you say anything, before we talk about any of this, will you please read this letter? It's from Paul to you. Now, Philemon at that moment could have taken it, ripped it up, and thrown it away and said, I need you to go back and suffer. I need you to go back to being a slave. We don't really know the events that transpired. We don't know exactly what happened. I am... I might be making somewhat of a bold statement by saying that I think the reason why this letter is mentioned in the canonical book of the Bible, because Philemon did the right thing, because Philemon actually listened to what Paul was saying, or maybe he didn't need to listen to what Paul was saying. Maybe he just understood it. Now, Paul mentions in his letter to the Colossians another issue about this idea of masters and servants. It's almost towards the very end of the, uh, of the writing, before he mentions Tychicus and before he mentions Onesimus, he says this, it's on, it should be on the screen. Colossians 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you too also have a master in heaven. Acknowledging at this moment that regardless of where your position is in life, we are still subservient to the true master. And it is through that master that we receive everything we get. So, 
I want to go through some takeaways. What are some biblical truths that we can receive from this message? What are some things that we can see through the experience of Philemon, Onesimus, and what Paul is imploring him to do that apply to us today? And the first one, I think, is, is the biggest part. The gospel is the main point in all of this. Because the gospel is the power of God to save. There are three individuals who are primarily mentioned in this. You've got Paul, Onesimus, and Philemon. There are other individuals that are in there, but the main focal point is on these three individuals. And the beauty is God has saved all of them. Right? God is the one who has saved them from the destruction that they deserve. And that's the same God and the same message, gospel, good news, that we too as believers have received that has saved us from the very thing that we deserve, death and separation from God because of our sins. God saves and we are, we are merely recipients of that mercy and that love and that grace, that unmerited favor that we receive from God. We are recipients of that, but we are also vessels of that. Right? We are to extend the gospel to other people, the good news to other people. That's, that's what Paul was doing in his ministry to uh, Philemon. That's what he was doing in his ministry to Onesimus. Paul is merely reminding him as a vessel of someone who's been changed to Philemon. You too have been changed, and that means your behavior, your lifestyle, your views of other people need to change as well. Secondly, the promise of the gospel is to transform. It is, if it is the gospel that saves, it is the gospel that transforms. It is the gospel that changes. I mean, if you think about, I am no longer who I was before Christ. I am now a new creation. What was old has gone away. I am new. Paul went to great lengths in this specific letter to point out Philemon's transformation. I mean, I just want to go back and remind you. I didn't, we didn't read through this just yet, but... Paul calls him a fellow beloved worker. In, in verse 4, he says, I thank my God always when I, remember my, when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all of the saints. Verse 7, For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, Philemon, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. These are instances where he's pointing out just how much change has happened in Philemon's life. So when we consider this, when we are saved, we are transformed into a new person. More specifically, our old self and the sins that came with that have been washed away. We are a new creation. And that is the very thing that, Philemon, that, uh, that Paul is addressing to Philemon in relation to, to Onesimus. I want you to understand that this man who you knew before he came to Rome, is no longer. He has changed. He too is a beloved brother in the faith. He too loves the saints. He too is being an active participant in this new Christian ministry that we have. He has changed. Pointing this out and vouching for him. Finally, I think a great biblical truth that we can pull out of this passage from this, this specific letter, is the idea of forgiveness. And, and I put up here the request of the gospel is to forgive. In our own lives, we probably are faced with an instance or a situation where we've been wronged by somebody. And we have the choice. Do we 
hate them forever? Do we distance ourselves from them? Or do we take the step of forgiving them? That is what Philemon is being asked to do by Paul. Will you forgive him? I think about Christ on the cross. One of the last things that he says is, Father, forgive these people because they don't know what they're doing. His last words while he's been crucified on the cross is a request to forgive. That to me is a powerful statement. And it's one that should be applied to our own individual lives. Now, he's pleading with Philemon, asking him to forgive this transgression that Onesimus has committed. And he's asking him to go a step further. Don't just forgive him. Welcome him into the community. Welcome him into this new life, to this new family. Consider him as you would consider me, Paul says. If you would roll out the red carpet for me, why not roll out the red carpet for him? Because we are all together in one faith, following Christ in one way. Now, I would submit to you that one of the hardest things to do in the Christian life is to forgive. I think that we all have experienced this in some capacity. I have my own areas where I, I've, I've been called upon to, to forgive people, and it's been hard. It's not been something easy for me to do. I have no doubt that in my own subconscious there are moments where maybe I think I've forgiven somebody, but I may hold a grudge against them. But the area in which I would say this is probably most relevant to my life has to deal with my relationship with my father. I have had an incredible relationship with my father. He's an incredible godly man. I love him to death. He did not have a great relationship with his father. He did not receive the love and the care that I, I think uh, fathers are to extend to their children. And as my grandfather got older in life and before he passed away, I remember asking my dad, have you ever forgiven him for what he's done? And I, when I think about my dad's response of unequivocally saying yes, it was because he realized the God that had forgiven him of all the mistakes that he had made. Forgive me. He, he points out to, to me in this moment, who am I to not forgive my father if God has forgiven me of all that I've done? That's a biblical truth that, as you can see, it still hits me today. Simply because if God has forgiven us of everything we have done, we will do, who are we to not forgive other people? Now, I can't speak into what you've gone through in your life. I can't ever diminish the pain and suffering that you've had to experience in your own life. But I can say this, that if God has forgiven us of what we have done, that must mean that he gives us his power to forgive. If you look to yourself to forgive somebody else, you're never going to have that power and that strength. It has to be through the supernatural work of God to forgive. Christ calls us to love God and love others. And part of that process is to forgive. And so my encouragement to you is whatever issue is going on in your life or whatever feelings you harbor against, to some, against someone else, consider this, that God who loves you and has forgiven you has given you the power of the Holy Spirit in your life to forgive other people. And if you can rely on that power, 
to forgive those individuals. Scripture says that we will be rewarded in so many ways, whether it's the restoration of an old relationship, excuse me, an old relationship, or the joy and the beauty that comes from finally being released from that. That's a beautiful thing to consider. Now, before we leave here this morning, I would be remiss if I did not address one more thing that is in the book of Philemon that I believe is an incredible nugget of biblical truth that we need to follow. And it actually comes uh, in the beginning. So if you'll turn with me to uh, verse 4. Hopefully you don't have to turn because I'm pretty sure Philemon is on one page of your Bible. But if you'll look with me up to verse 4, I already addressed this, but I just feel the need to, 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 to break it down a little bit more. Paul says in verse 4, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of the love, of your love and the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And then this is that one great passage. And I pray that the sharing of your faith will become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ Jesus. What that is meaning, and if, if I can take another translation, that was from the English Standard Version. If I can take it from another Another version, the Holman Christian Standard Version, you may have the NASB, the NIV. I don't know what translation you have, but it's probably going to say something to what I just communicated or something like this. I pray that your participation in the faith leads to a greater understanding of the faith that we have in Christ Jesus. Our faith is active. It's not passive. It is something that we have to be involved in whether it is sharing your faith or participating in some capacity. Now, Paul is writing this to Philemon, who we know is a believer. Now, that does not mean that it excludes us from communicating our faith to unbelievers. He's merely pointing out that I pray, Philemon, that the more you share your faith with others, whether that's discipling a believer or sharing the gospel with an unbeliever, that that leads to a greater understanding of the Bible. If you... uh, if you've ever taken a sponge and you've dipped it in water and you pull that sponge out of the bucket or, or, where, or out of the sink, you're not going to get more water in the sponge unless you squeeze out what is currently in there. Have you ever taken a sponge that's wet and soggy and not been wringed out and set it on the sink or you know, somewhere and it, it starts to what? Sour, right? It starts to mold becomes really disgusting to the point where you don't even want to touch it anymore because that stench is going to be on your hands for a couple of days, right? You only get the full effectiveness of a sponge if you wring it out. And then it becomes more useful for getting more water. And that's our faith. If you share your faith with others, you learn more about this faith. You grow in your understanding. And then what do you do? You share more of it. And the more that you share, the more that you, re- you receive. The more you learn, the more you grow, the more you share. This process is so simple. It's the hardest thing to do, but it is so simple when we truly understand that. And so I, I just want to leave you with this. If you want to grow in your faith, you have to be active. It may be forgiving, right? It may mean Spending time with somebody who doesn't know as much about the faith. It may mean seeking out or searching for someone who does know more about the faith so that they can teach you and educate you and help you grow. But if you are not active in your faith, how can you be used in the capacity that we've started to see these men being used? That's just a challenge to consider. 
Let's pray. Father, you are so good. You are so loving. You are so merciful and gracious. But Father, you are the source of joy. You are the source of life. You are the source of peace. Everything that we can imagine, we know comes from you, Lord. If we seek this out, you have promised we will always receive it. To unceasingly never quit seeking and pursuing you, Lord. You said that is the true source of life, the true source of joy. And Lord, I pray we can do that this morning. I pray that all of us here in this room have the ability to understand and acknowledge you for who you are and to bask in the glory of knowing that you love us and that you want to be with us and spend time with us. Help us to do that. Help us to live that out. Help us to know that. We love you, Lord, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.